Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, our weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. As you might have guessed, in this week's episode, we're going to be discussing Boris Johnson's big cabinet reshuffle. We'll be digging into the dramatic departure of Chancellor Sajid Javid, the rapid rise of Rishi Sunak, and what it means for the upcoming budget and the UK's finances. There's also many more major changes to key Whitehall departments, environment, business, international development, and the Attorney General's office. We'll be explaining all the new appointments and what this means for where the Prime Minister is heading. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, and Economics Editor Chris Giles. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then you should subscribe through all those usual channels, and you can also leave us a nice review while you're at it. Thursday's cabinet reshuffle was billed as a muted affair. Downing Street was actively telling journalists it will only be moderate changes with a couple of specific departments facing new ministers. But that plan blew up in their faces when Sajid Javid abruptly resigned. The Chancellor spent 75 minutes talking to the Prime Minister on Thursday morning, but he refused an ultimatum to sack all of his advisers and essentially allow Number 10 to land a power grab with the Treasury. In his place, the 39-year-old Rishi Sunak has stepped up. But with a budget due just in three weeks, there are big questions now about the future of the Treasury and the UK's finances. So, George Parker, what a story it's been this week that we knew this reshuffle was coming ever since Boris Johnson won that majority in December's election. There were no real changes when he formed his government in January. This was originally billed as a big affair, then it was billed as a small affair, (laughs) and then, surprisingly, it became a big affair again. Yeah, I think the intention the night before the reshuffle was indeed for it to be what they call a moderate changing of the guard in the government, moving around a load of people that most ordinary citizens will never have heard of at the top table. But as you say, the things went off the rails at around about 10.30 when Sajid Javid was confronted with this ultimatum, accept my terms for staying on the job, which was basically you sack all of your advisors and we have a new merged economic unit spanning number 10 and number 11 Downing Street. In other words, number 10 micromanaging everything the Treasury does, or you go. And he was in that room in that hour. Boris Johnson had a choice between saving his chancellor or basically losing his chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, whose idea this was. And in the end, he went for his advisor. And it's a big, big moment because it's the moment where number 10 does assert its authority over the Treasury. And as Sajid Javid himself said, no self-respecting minister could ever have accepted the terms he was being offered. I think just one thing I would say is there's some speculation that was this always number 10's intention that Sajid would walk. And I don't think that was the case. I mean, if you think about the sequence of events this week, Sajid Javid was put out on the airwaves earlier in the week to sell the government's new infrastructure programme. Basically, Boris Johnson thought that Sajid Javid would roll over and take it and would carry on as a lame duck chancellor. And that, of course, was something he wasn't prepared to accept. 
And to add that, we know that once Sanjay Javid said he wouldn't accept these terms, two senior people from Downing Street, Eddie Lister, who's a senior advisor to Boris Johnson, took him aside and said, look, don't do this. And they tried to convince mm. him out of it. So despite some people claiming there was a grand plan here, I agree with you, George, there wasn't. Miranda Green, let's just stand back for a moment and explain why this came to a head here. Because first of all, spats have this kind of odd role in Westminster. They are the people who advise ministers, they direct them what to do, and they protect them politically as well, because the civil service can't do that in the UK. So spats have a very important role within these departments. But over the past couple of weeks, we've seen these big clashes between the spad team in number 10, led, of course, by Dominic Cummings, his chief advisor, and Shanti Javid's spad team. And there's been all these briefings backwards and forwards. It's been getting pretty nasty. Well, as you say, they have a particular and quite odd role, the special advisors, and they are essentially the creature of that particular individual minister. So when they lose their job in a reshuffle, for example, the minister's staff, the spads are out of a job as well. And there's always been that tension there when things go wrong between the central machine of a government and cabinet ministers who are slightly ploughing their own furrow. And clearly it went very wrong here. Dominic Cummings had already marched one of Sajid Javid's previous advisers out very dramatically, so there'd been tensions about that. And it seemed to come down to a matter of sort of personal dignity for Sajid Javid. I mean, he gave a quote saying, no self-respecting minister would accept these terms. So whether they intended him to really go or not, they were asking him to accept humiliation, which I think speaks volumes about the sort of operation they're running. It's very interesting, this idea of putting the number 10 and number 11 operations together. There are clearly upsides for any government in terms of coherence of message, in terms of not having public briefing wars, as has been going on for the last two or three weeks. But there could also be downsides because SPADs are supposed to be specialists and they're supposed to be experts. And as you've said as well, they're supposed to be intelligence gathering for their minister. If you create a sort of one-stop shop, in Downing Street. You might gain politically from that in the short term. I worry slightly, and people like Jill Rutter, who knows a lot about how Whitehall works, has been saying as well, you might be slightly downgrading the expertise and you're also definitely downgrading the ability for dissent and debate where you haven't yet arrived at the best solution to the particular problem. And these are large-scale important problems about the future of the British economy. And we saw Sajid Javid actually warned about that in his letter, saying that the institution of the Treasury must be protected. Chris, I'm going to come to you on Mr Javid in a moment. But first, George, a lot of this has been billed as Dominic Cummings's plan here, and we should not overreg it because it was the Prime Minister who put this ultimatum to Sajid mm. Javid. And we don't think Mr Cummings was actually even in the room when this happened. But why do you think he's so obsessed with SPADs? Because these advisers, there's probably, what I guess, no more than 100 of them across Whitehall. And ever since he went into Downing Street, he's had these weekly SPAD meetings where he's been quite rude to them and has sort of said, it's my way or the highway. Mm. There's been questions over a spad pay. Why does he see them as so important? Well, basically, he controls them. And Dominic Cummings wants to have control. And also, he sees them as his transmission mechanism. So the way in which he operates control from the centre, and then he disseminates the instructions out through the network of Whitehall with people he can fire if they don't do what he says. So I think that's essentially why he's so interested in this. One of the interesting things I find about the whole episode is that Dominic Cummings now is trying to exert total control from number 10, which is inevitably, as Miranda was just alluding to, going to demoralise, demotivate and weaken individual government departments. When you think Dominic Cummings made his name 
initially as an advisor to Michael Gove at a very effective and activist Department of Education. I remember him telling me, making a point, he never told David Cameron or Number 10 what he was doing. So there you had an example of where a motivated, energised, well-run government department could actually affect change. And yet Dominic Cummings from the centre is now trying to close down that kind of initiative. But that makes him sort of poacher turn game yes, exactly. in this game, doesn't it? So Chris, let's look at Sanjay Javid now because he's been Chancellor for a very short space of time. He's the first Chancellor since Ian McLeod in 1970 to not deliver a budget and that was because he died 10 days into the job. And it's the first Chancellor to resign with a policy clash with the Prime Minister since Nigel Lawson in the early 1990s. So he doesn't really have a huge amount of legacy as Chancellor when you look at what he did or didn't do in the job. No, he has pretty much no legacy because all the decisions were essentially postponed. The budget in November was postponed. The budget now coming up hasn't been delivered. And so he's really not done very much. He's appointed a new Bank of England governor, Andrew Bailey. So that's the main actual policy he's done. And he has got into the manifesto the fiscal rules that are supposed to apply for the whole of this parliament, although we don't know whether they will, whether Boris Johnson will now ditch these fiscal rules in the manifesto before they have been implemented because they're not in law in any way yet. So that's one very big question. But in terms of economic legacy, really, there is very little for Sajid. And when we look at this question, the Bank of England governor, you know, people that I spoke to in the Treasury on Thursday were saying that that had actually been one of the main friction points between number 10 and number 11. It was very well known in the Treasury that number 10 wanted Andy Haldane, and particularly Dominic Cummings wanted Haldane to be the governor. But Sajid Javid managed to outmanoeuvre him and get in his choice of Andrew Bailey. Is there any chance that could change now or is the process already too far gone? No, it's gone now. It's done because it's a Crown appointment and it's gone to the Crown. It's not something that the Treasury Select Committee, which has a pre-commencement hearing coming up, probably, we don't know yet, but probably in early March, they don't actually have a power of veto over it. So it's a decision that's done and dusted. So it will be Andrew Bailey. He's there for eight years unless he decides to leave early. He has significant independence. And I've got to say that I don't find the Andy Haldane stories that have been around, I know people are saying this, I don't find it massively credible that he was really absolutely going to be a serious candidate because he didn't meet the criteria that were very well laid out, which was the way that the Treasury and others in government essentially rejected other candidates like Helena Morrissey, like Gerard Lyons, for not being suitable because they didn't meet the criteria. And Andy Haldane, for example, hasn't run a large financial institution, which was part of the written down criteria. So it would have been quite hard to have appointed him. Plus, it would have meant that he would have leapfrogged over all the deputy governors in the bank, which would have created quite a few personal problems, I think, within Threadneedle Street itself. And George, we do know the other source of tension, which is where the conversation is really going to go next, is about the upcoming budget. Because when we go back to the Tory general election campaign, Dominic Cummings wanted to basically open the spending taps. And his political argument was that Labour's gone so far to the left, we can run on an almost centre-left fiscal platform and still be credible and still get away with it because of the amount of money and taxation Labour under Jeremy Corbyn was doing. But there was a debate within the party over that and Sanjay Javid and Isaac Levido, who ran the Tory campaign, 
they were very much saying, you know, we've got to have fiscal credibility. We've got to stick to broadly centre-right economics. That debate was won. But there's now a question with Rishi Sunak in place. Is that now going to change? And what does this mean for the budget in three weeks? Well, there was a meeting in number 10 before the election intervened where Dominic Cummings had a whiteboard out and he was basically telling Sajid how he wanted a spending review where they opened the spending taps and a budget where they cut loads of taxes. So to put it mildly, I don't think uh, fiscal discipline is high on Dominic Cummings' list of priorities. So I think, you know, the markets have reacted suspecting that the fiscal rules Chris was just talking about there will be loosened at the budget. And I think they're probably right about that. I think there's an interesting question now about whether they put taxes up on higher earners. I think there's a bit more nuance the difference between number 10 and number 11 on that. I think both sides have a bit of nervousness about that. But nevertheless, I think the fiscal rulebook will be relaxed. And as far as Rishi Sunak's concerned, I mean, I think he's cut from very much the same political cloth as Sajid Javid, who he regards as a political mentor. They both come from the world of international finance, Rishi Sunak, Goldman Sachs, Sajid Javid, Deutsche Bank. They're both regarded as inside the Treasury as fiscal conservatives. But nevertheless, as we've just been discussing, Rishi Sunak, frankly, isn't going to be writing this budget. Well, this is the question now, Miranda, is that as George and I wrote, I think it was last week, there was this nickname for Sajid Javid, which was the Chino, the Chancellor in name only, with an emphasis on the no, because Sajid Javid would say no to everything. When you look at Rishi Sunak now going in there, you do have to wonder how much independence he's going to have. And I saw people already joking that we've gone from the Chino to the The baby baby Chino, indeed. What do you make of that position and because there's two arguments you can say yes he's just going to be a patsy for number 10 or you can make the argument in fact they couldn't afford to lose two chancellors and that Sunak actually will have a bit more independence than you might think. Well the wonderful thing about politics is that it's this bizarre interplay between the kind of wider trends that are going on and then the individual personalities and they do maybe have a lot in common in terms of their conservatism, but they're very different individuals. And, you know, Rishi Sunak has had this extraordinary meteoric rise. He was only elected in 2015 as an MP and all of a sudden he's Chancellor, having had quite lowly jobs before he entered the Treasury. He's also sort of unlike Sajid Javid, who had this wonderful backstory about his origins, which made him want to be leader of the party. And let's face it, a few months ago, he was even being talked of as a possible leader. Rishi Sunak is playing a completely different political game and is on a completely different career journey to Sajid Javid. So there's a possibility that he could become over time a more powerful figure within Johnson's entourage. It's much more like a court now with an all-powerful prime minister who doesn't want rival power bases in the court, right? So he's removed these people who might be dissenters or who he thought or his operation thought were trying to develop a separate power base. But even within that sort of operation, you can have individuals, the favourite becoming quite powerful within it. And I think that's possible with this individual Rishi Sunak, given his meteoric rise. Indeed. And Chris, when we look at the number 10, number 11 relations, I'm sure you've watched them through many prime ministers and chancellors. This is a story that goes on and on. What's your view on the future of the Treasury's independence? Because Sajid Javid warned Prime Minister about this in his resignation letter. Do you think the Treasury will still maintain its all-powerful position in Whitehall? Or is this a very serious power grab by number 10? And is it practical as well to have the economy run out of Downing Street by Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings? Well, it's certainly not practical in the long term. In the short term, it certainly makes the Treasury a much, much weaker institution. It was already quite weak under Sajid Javid because he was seen as a relatively weak chancellor. 
so for the next few months, it's certainly going to be weak. Everyone's going to think that the policy is entirely made in number 10. And at some time, this is going to cause some problems because there are fundamental differences between what number 10 does and what number 11 does. So number 11 obviously has to keep control of the finances. So obviously often has a role in saying no to things. And number 10 often will say we'll, we'll be there to create ideas and, and get things going. So there is a creative tension there, and it often works best when it is sometimes, you know, a little bit antagonistic. But one of the real problems about running everything out of number 10, and as Miranda says, having a sort of a court structure where everyone has to cheerlead and repeat what the prime minister is saying, is this is just groupthink. This is exactly the Mm. problems that we got into, which caused the financial crisis. If you're not allowed to express dissent, if you're not allowed to say, well, hang on a second, maybe this looks fine for now, but in five years' time it might not look quite so rosy, then that is not creating a problem immediately, but it's exactly what always creates the problems in the long run. Yeah, I totally agree with that. If you take out a powerful institution like the Treasury from the equation, you open the floodgates for all manner of crazy ideas, and number 10 are always coming up with ways to spend money, and you rely on the Treasury and someone in the Treasury to be able to put the brakes on it and just say, hang on a sec, there are other priorities here. One other thing I would just take issue with is some people have been saying, oh, well, he's just lost one chancellor. He can't possibly afford to lose another one. Therefore, Rishi Sunak will be a strong chancellor. Well, we're playing by different rules here. I don't see why anyone thinks that if Rishi Sunak starts to cause trouble for number 10 or becomes too powerful or becomes a potential successor to Boris Johnson, he won't be taken out of the knees as well. And Miranda, talking of people being taken out of this, where did this leave Sajid Javid now that two days ago he was one of the most powerful people in government and now he's just a backbench MP? It doesn't feel as if he's going to become a real threat to Boris Johnson anyway, because first of all, this is still Boris Johnson's party. He's still got that 80 seat majority. And on a personal level, we still think that Boris Johnson and Sajid Javid are on good terms, that this was about an operational thing. They hadn't necessarily fallen out personally. So it's going to be quite curious to see what he does now. Yeah, it'll be very interesting, actually, to watch when he speaks up and if he speaks up. So one of the things that the reshuffle has done is to remove anyone in the cabinet who might speak up about the dangers of a WTO no-deal Brexit at the end of the year, for example. If it looks like that's a danger again, would Sajid Javid make a fuss about it from the back benches? We're yet to find out. He's been very measured in what he's said so far. But I would just say one thing. We are stunned by this 80-seat majority because we've become so used to hung parliaments or tiny wafer-thin majorities in recent years. It isn't so big as to completely protect Boris Johnson once his honeymoon period is over. And then having powerful people on the back benches with an axe to grind is not that healthy. Beyond Sajid Javid, though, there were still some other major changes within the government. This was the more muted part of the reshuffle Downing Street had promised. At the business department, international trade, environment and culture, we all saw new appointments. But the overall balance has not changed massively in the cabinet. It's still very much favoured towards Brexiters, with a couple of Remainers swapping people out. And on the gender equality front, they are down minus one woman on the overall makeup of those who attend cabinet. But if there's one theme across the new appointments, it is loyalty to Boris Johnson. Those who backed him in the leadership contest and have delivered quietly and effectively in their departments are the ones who have been rewarded and those who have been punished are the ones who've spoken out. 
So, George, let's have a look at some of the appointments within the cabinet there. Do you agree the general theme is one about people who are loyal? Because if you look at some people, like the new business secretary, Alok Sharma, he's someone who's not too well known in Westminster. Well, I think you said in your introduction there that the premium was on people who were quietly and effectively getting on with their job. I would say probably the emphasis on that would be quietly. It's hard to tell whether any ministers, frankly, have been effectively getting on with their jobs. They haven't really done very much since Boris Johnson was made prime minister back in July. Alok Sharma has come from the International Development Department. He's a popular person with a business background. And as you say, Andrea Leadsom, she wasn't widely admired, I would say, by the business lobby. I don't think there'll be too many tears shed to see Andrea Leadsom go. But nevertheless, she was quite a big figure. And I think that was one of the reasons why she was taken out by Boris Johnson. She was a former leadership contender, of course, herself. Alex Sharma will be much quieter, but quietly effective, I imagine. The fact that he's also been put in charge of the COP26 summit, this troubled summit in November in Glasgow, is slightly worrying, I think, from a business point of view. Because you think there'd be a fairly large amount of stuff on his plate already, running that big department, which after all covers energy, industrial strategy and business as well. And I don't still understand quite how Alex Sharma is going to run COP26. When the French were running the equivalent, they had Laurent Fabius, I think it was, who spent a whole year on a plane. I think he made five or six trips to China. He was in the air virtually the whole time trying to get international consensus around something at the summit. How on earth Alex Sharma is supposed to coordinate that on top of running a massive sprawling department as well is anyone's guess. Because there had been talk that Michael Gove, who actually hasn't changed his role at all in the government, was going to take over COP26 and Number 10 had briefed they wanted an experienced heavy hitter who could hold their own on the international stage. And we'll see if Mr Sharma fits that brief. I can only imagine that they still want to get someone else to be the president of COP26. Someone like David Cameron, as we know, was approached and William Hague, someone like that, because you can't be Secretary of State and be the chair of this conference. I think that's right. Now, Miranda, the more shocking, I think, change was probably Julian Smith, the Northern Ireland Secretary, who was widely praised for getting Stormont up and running again after three years of political stalemate in the province. And he was fired by Boris Johnson. There's been sort of two theories doing the rounds on why that is. One was to do with Brexit, when he was speaking out quite harshly against a no-deal Brexit back in October, which was against the government's policy on that. The other one was to do with a part of this Stormont deal, which was investigations into murders during the Troubles, which is something that Downing Street claim they weren't aware of, although there's, again, people and friends of Julian Smith say that that was not necessarily the case. It's a bit of a murky story, but for whatever reason, there seems to have been a loss of trust, whether he was actually freelancing, as it's been described, during those negotiations to get Stormont up and running or not. And as you've quite rightly said, his camp disputes that. He did manage to do it. And it's actually one of the only concrete achievements of the last few months. And it's a significant and important breakthrough for maintaining peace in Northern Ireland, for getting a political process back on track where you can work through the next year of the Brexit negotiations and their implications for Northern Ireland, which are not uncomplicated. So it's a bit depressing, this idea that Julian Smith got fired, because it's almost as if the kind of reward for competence is to be shown the door if you display any sort of sign of having a mind of your own, even if it's tactical during a complicated negotiation where you may be the only person who understands how to get it done. So I think that's been quite poorly received. And the only thing I could find having a look around yesterday on his replacement was a sort of statement about how there was not going to be any customs border or regulatory checks in the Irish Sea, which of course turned out to be completely the opposite of the case. And he also represents Great Yarmouth, which is about as far as you can get geographically from Northern (laughs) Ireland. So he's going to have to read himself into a very complicated brief 
very fast because Northern Ireland is still central to this complicated Brexit process. Indeed, and when we look at the people who were sacked in that reshuffle who could be problematic, I think Mr Smith is probably the one who could be the biggest problem for Downing Street, George, because we know that there's this issue about checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which Boris Johnson continues to exist, won't exist, even though there is now an international treaty that says they will exist. And there's also so many difficult things about the RHI scandal, which is to do with the renewable heat initiative in Belfast. There's a big report coming on that in the next couple of weeks. And I think when you look at Julian Smith, when I was in Belfast at the beginning of January, representatives from all the parties, unionist and nationalist and those in the middle, all respected him and said he'd done a really good job at getting this thing together. So if things do start to go off the rails a bit in Northern Ireland, then Boris Johnson has a ready-made critic who knows all the parties and has respected all the parties there. To look at Hmm. another department, briefly, the Department for International Trade, this is one that we thought might actually get shut down in the reshuffle. And it wasn't quite, although we now have a huge number of junior ministers Hmm. with the Foreign Office and replacing Alex Sharma there is Anne-Marie Trevelyan, who's the MP for Northumberland. Again, a northern voice at the top of government and someone who's also been very loyal to Boris Johnson, but very critical of that 0.7% target of aid spending. Well, the 0.7% target for aid spending is something which right-wing conservatives has been railing against ever since it was introduced and to the credit of successive governments, including the coalition government in the middle of austerity, they stuck with it. And every so often you get briefings to the Daily Telegraph saying that they're going to start mucking around with the definition of the 0.7% target. But it's nailed down. It's agreed at an OECD level. It's very difficult to touch. And I think in the end, there'll be a lot of venting about this, but I don't think they will change the 0.7% target. What I think they will do, and you alluded to it there, Seb, is they will gradually start to integrate the Foreign Office and the Department of International Development much more closely. It's something that Boris Johnson has said on the record he wanted to do when he was Foreign Secretary. He gave an interview to you, I think, Seb, about this and said that it was ludicrous that the Foreign Secretary would go to, let's say, Addis Ababa, but wouldn't be able to operationalise the aid budget, which was about 12 times bigger than the Foreign Office budget, as part of our soft power influence. So I think, you know, there is a case for actually making better use of the aid budget as a diplomatic tool. So I think in that respect, I think Boris Johnson has started a process which will continue over the next few years. Yeah, I think it's actually quite interesting this because we are in a different era now. We're no longer part of the EU. And how is Britain going to act in the world? And how do you coordinate your soft power, your economic power, your military might, because we're still quite significant military power? This is all very interesting and important territory. So clearly better coordination is an improvement on people operating in silos. But at the same time, you don't want to break down expertise because one of the things that's happened in Whitehall since 2010, partly because of cuts, but also because of the direction of the politics, is that a lot of expertise has been lost and a lot of institutional memory has been lost. And when you're dealing with international relations, that's pretty important. So I think it's actually potentially quite a healthy direction, but must be done Right. And this idea of breaking down silos as well, I suppose, feeds into the kind of wider question about the reshuffle, which is the limits to how advantageous it is to having a government speak with one voice, which reached its sort of apogee this morning, I'm told, by a cabinet discussion where Boris Johnson was actually trying to lead the rest of the cabinet in some sort of call and response of slogans. So it's all very well saying we've got to have a disciplined operation, we've got to prioritise and everyone's got to be singing from the same hymn sheet. But you mustn't infantilise the complicated it's, process of I mean, government and decision making. That is extraordinary. I mean, that will be picked up. I mean, the idea that the Prime Minister, the second time he's done this incidentally in Cabinet, where he says, how many nurses? 50,000. How many schools? Blah, blah, blah. 
It's absurd. It's treating the cabinet like a class of five-year-olds. It harks back to that famous spitting image sketch, doesn't it? You know, Margaret Thatcher. I'll have the steak. What about vegetables? They'll they'll have the (laughs) same. They'll have the same. I mean, it's a caricature, but it's absolutely awful. And going back to the whole theme of our discussion today, yes, Number 10 has exerted control. Yes, that's fantastic from their point of view, but at the risk of diminishing expertise, diminishing alternative voices in government. And in the end, when things go wrong, as they will, there'll be only one place the buck will stop and that will be on the desk of number 10. Although I suspect Dominic Cummings will be first to go before Boris Johnson. I think that's right. Just to pick up on a couple of other crucial appointments we had, one that's definitely raised eyebrows, George, is the new Attorney General, Suella Braveman. She's replaced Geoffrey Cox, the very booming Brexiter, who I think again was quite sore being sacked in his resignation letter. He reminded Boris Johnson that he introduced him at the launch of his leadership campaign. But people in number 10 say that Mr Cox didn't keep his views to himself in cabinet and like long, ponderous interventions in debate. And the prime minister had essentially got fed up with that. But his replacement, Suella Braveman, she used to be head of the ERG. That's the European Research Group of Brexit Supporting MPs. And she wrote an op-ed quite recently, which seemed to chime very much with Dominic Cummings' thinking about judicial activism. And she says we need to take back control from judges, not just the EU. So I think a lot of people in legal land have raised eyebrows at this one. Well, they have. I don't think there's any danger that Suella Braverman is going to be uh, in the Geoffrey Cox League of someone who speaks out in cabinet and sets their own agenda. She will do exactly what she's told. I think many Conservative MPs wouldn't necessarily, even on the Eurosceptic wing of the party, would regard her as the sharpest pencil in the box. So she will do what she's told. I think that there is a potential problem here because, yes, there's an issue around judicial reviews, which Boris Johnson has railed against saying that it's being sometimes used as politics by another name. And that's something she will go after. But there will be a problem, I think, at some point where if it starts to look like the independence of the judiciary is under threat, then Robert Buckland, who's the Justice Secretary, has previously come out and spoken out very strongly in favour of the independence of the judiciary. I think if you push that agenda too far, there will be problems inside the government. And then finally, Miranda, two other quick appointments I wanted to just touch on, which are quite similar. One is the new Environment Secretary, George Eustace, who in a past life was Press Secretary to David Cameron, is a former farmer himself. He has written in The Guardian, rallying against chlorinated chicken and lowering the UK's agricultural standards to cut a quick trade deal with the US. The other person is the new Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, who also worked for David Cameron as his Deputy Chief of Staff there. And both of those appointments are quite low-key people as well. They are the sort of people that this downstreet seems to want, who will get on with their briefs, who are thought in Whitehall to be quite competent, not necessarily the biggest personality displays out there, but again, people who will kind of do the Prime Minister's bidding. So it's going to be very interesting because Oliver Dowden's in tray bequeathed him by Nikki Morgan in her last few weeks in the job as interim culture secretary is the government's desire to attack the BBC licence fee, which of course is a huge issue for post-Brexit Britain in terms of soft power as well as for democracy and for the ecosystem of the creative industries in the UK. So it's going to be very interesting to see what direction he takes on that and whether he's any more conciliatory than Nicky Morgan, who seemed to be very bellicose on this issue about the BBC. And then George Eustace, yes, I think you're right. I think this will be interesting to see because somebody with a farming background and also, I read, financial farming interests in terms of (laughs) receiving EU money for his family farm will have a very different perspective from people looking at Brexit only theoretically in terms of its impact on agriculture, the countryside, the environment in terms of how it's cared for by people working it. And that might actually turn out to be a very important perspective. 
So that's it. That is our new government with a whole new load of cabinet positions. And we'll be picking up next week on how that starts to look and what they start to do. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much as ever to George, Miranda and Chris for joining us. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard and would like to check out some more FT journalism, then you can find our subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. But far more excitingly on that, on February the 26th, you can come to the FT to Brackenhouse and see a live FT politics podcast being recorded come along ask us any questions enjoy the magic you can find out more details at live.ft.com we'd love to see you there until then ft politics was presented by me sebastian payne and produced by anna Deda and jack denton until next time thanks for listening Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.